nimbleness is something that's really important. So how are you making decisions knowing that last year's kind of not a good year to look at because you know things will return back to normal. And so getting faster at being able to look at data to understand what's happening, knowing the trends of what's happening. The other thing that these disruptive brands do well is they incorporate that user-generated content into their product development. It's getting the cycle time down, but it's also figuring out how do you take all the stuff that people are saying about your brand in social media and in reviews and all these other places and incorporate that into your product development and your advertising and your content and all of that. In the wild world of e-commerce, the status quo is always changing. New companies enter the market to disrupt the norms, legacy brands pivot to get a piece of the pie, and successful niche businesses get acquired left and right. With so much happening all at once, it takes a lot of work for brands to not only keep up, but also get ahead and win. Andrea Lay and Melissa Burdick have made it their mission to stay on top of everything that's happening and use their knowledge to help companies large and small make an impact in the market. Andrea Lay is the VP of Strategy and Insights for IdeoClick. You may remember her from a previous episode where we dove into how to win on Amazon and the death of the category. And Melissa Burdick is the co-founder and CEO of PackView, a company that helps advertisers scale on big e-commerce platforms like Amazon, Walmart, and Instacart. A few of their customers include companies like Unilever, Duracell, and Johnson & Johnson. You know, small guys. These ladies each spent 10 years at Amazon, back when e-commerce wasn't cool, as Melissa said. Today, at their current companies, they work with disruptors and major brands alike as they come to realize that e-commerce is not just a fad, but the way of the future. And that's why I was so thrilled to invite them on this roundtable episode to talk about all the trends they've been seeing recently and to get their take on where things are headed. How are major brands moving to digital? Why are companies investing in shorter product life cycles? And what is the future of dropshipping and ad platforms? I wanted to know it all and they delivered the goods. So sit back and enjoy this episode. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnext in commerce. All right, onto the show. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today is a very special episode because it's our second ever roundtable, and our guests are going to blow your mind. They're at least going to blow mine for sure. 
First up, we have Andrea Lay, who you probably remember. I think she was on episode 81 or so. She currently serves as the VP of Strategy and Insights for IdeoClick. Andrea, welcome. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for having me back. So glad to have you back. Your episode really was one of my favorites, which is why it's very clear of like, we need to have Andrea back on the show. I think we even said that in our episode. So probably (laughs) no surprise that you're here, huh? All right. And joining Andrea and I is Melissa Burdick, who serves as the president and co-founder of PackView. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we are excited for you to join our party. So you guys seem like you have some history. You seem like you're friends. You're in Clubhouse together. I was hoping to kind of start there just so the audience knows, you know, who are you and how do you guys know each other? Andrea, maybe if you want to kick it off. Well, I would love to tell the story of how I remember first meeting Melissa. We worked at Amazon together. I think this was in maybe 2006. Mm-hmm. And we, she was the buyer for the health and personal care side of the business. And I was the buyer for the grocery side. And we both negotiated with the same uh, brand that spanned both categories in the same day. And we met in the kitchen afterwards and she had gotten like such a better deal on her negotiation, <laughs> like such better terms <laughs> than me. And I couldn't believe it because I was a total newbie and she was like a really experienced negotiator. And so I made her teach me all of her tips and tricks. That's my, that's my memory of my first time uh, meeting Melissa. <laughs> wow. Melissa, do you remember that day? I, I, so I, I didn't really remember it until Andrea told me and I didn't remember it that way. So it's mm-hmm. kind of funny, like the perception that she had versus what I had, but she and I both spent 10 years at Amazon. We were kind of um, early pioneers of the consumables category back when e-commerce wasn't cool. And so we really got to do a lot of great stuff. I, I call it the cheapest MBA I didn't have to pay for working at Amazon because we learned how to ship, you know, tubes of toothpaste profitably. Well, I don't know if, if we ever figured that out or will across <laughs> the internet, but it really was kind of wild, wild west of e-commerce times. And Andrea and I were there at the beginning and that's how we met each other. And we've just been, um, we actually had a consulting practice together. We've been friends in the industry. Now we're kind of competitors in some ways, but that's kind of the beauty about our community and industry is that we're still friends. It takes, you know, I tell brands, it takes a village to do e-commerce because it's so complex. And so having thought leadership and experts um, is, you know, what we like to do. So Andrew and I have a clubhouse show that we do together um, and still like keep in touch. So. Yeah. I remember when Andrea, we were like, who should we have on for a round table? And she brought you up. And then when she was explaining, she's like, she's like kind of a competitor to our firm, but like we're friends and like we work together. And I was like, <laughs> whatever you want, girl, we'll bring her on. And if you love her, like I'm sure I will too. So yeah, that that's awesome. So, okay. I want to kind of get into the topic. I know you all have a clubhouse later on today that you're going to be hosting, which I think the topic that you're going to be covering there is kind of perfect for this show. And like I said earlier, it'd be perfect practice all around how brands are going to market and how the world of e-commerce and commerce in general is so different now. So maybe Melissa, if you kind of want to start with, you know, how do you even view the world now versus a couple of years ago? Like what's different? What what are brands struggling with that maybe they never had to think about before? Yeah. I mean, to the earlier point of your question, like the moat is, is so much smaller now. Like the ability to create a brand is much easier. So, you know, Years and years, 20 years ago, when e-commerce didn't really exist, it was your big brand. You get into the shelves of a Walmart because you're tied or something like that. But 
with e-commerce and with kind of more platforms and marketplaces, there's this ability to create a brand and a loyal following and base through things like, you know, social media, you know, TikTok or, you know, viral ways that you can build communities and brands. And so today we're talking about, you know, a couple brands, Dude Wipes and Wise Camera, or I guess Wise, actually they started with a camera. They both are kind of emerging brands. They weren't the big PNGs and, you know, Samsungs of the world. They built, you know, kind of emerging disruptive brands and they've been very, very successful. And so that's, that's a little bit about today's show. What about you, Andrea? What do you think about the, these emerging brands? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think another thing that has really changed is that is the ambitions of brands. So it, I think it used, it used to be more, you know, brands were kind of to your point, Melissa, they were built by large organizations and they were, you layer on this enormous supply chain and distribution, and then a marketing engine on top of that, sort of in that order. And I think the two things that stand out to me as being different now with marketplaces is that first, a brand can aspire to be smaller than that. You know, a brand can aspire to just address a certain niche or a certain customer segment and do it really well. And maybe a brand wants to only be a $100 million brand versus a billion dollar brand. And I think that's posing some really stiff competition to some of the more established brands in the space, particularly in CPG. So I think those brand ambitions are changing for sure. And we, we did sort of an internal panel with some clients and thought leaders. And, and this was like a big topic there too, was these ambitions of brands and how they're different than they used to be. So I think that's a big one. And then I think what those smaller brands can do better, and I think we've seen this with both Dude Wipes and Wise, is that iterative approach to product development that incorporates the customer and their feedback. And so really thinking about like how to, like Wise is such a great example. They entered a super highly competitive market the category was already highly competitive with a lot of players and they just went in there and they did it better. And they did that because they were able to really listen to customer feedback, not just like through reviews, but through all the social media channels and, and approach brand building in an iterative way. And so those are a couple of things that I've seen with some of our more upstart clients that have been really successful, that kind of iterative approach and that really laser focus on like a specific segment. Cool. So to talk a bit about like the ambitions of the brands. Do you think that brands that, you know, are, like you said, maybe they don't need to IPO, they don't need to get acquired. They're kind of looking to stay more niche and they're okay with that. Do you think they can sustain long-term? Because it kind of feels like if you don't have goals, you know, to really like make a mark, you're just going to get beat out by like people who can spend a lot of money on ads and who can, you know, just has a lot of other channels to create content and create entire content platforms. It's like they can do so much because of how much capital they have access to. What yeah. do you think about the brands who don't have those ambitions right now? Well, I think for some of our, I mean, for a handful of our clients, it's just a lifestyle business, right? Like mm -hmm. we have, we have a, um, a couple of brands who are family owned and they've been family owned for generations. And, and that's an, that's a lifestyle brand, you know, they're running it to kind of, because they have a lot of, um, passion for the product or the category and their product people. But I think in the, in the other cases, they're mostly getting acquired. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. what we're seeing across the industry. They get acquired by a larger CPG. They get acquired by one of these like newer FBA rollups or FBA aggregator companies that goes in and buys up all these small sellers on Amazon. But I think they get acquired. But I think the challenge with that is that what I see is these CPGs either acquire them really early and then they kind of try to scale it because they most larger CPGs are in the business of scaling brands. 
Mm-hmm. And so they try to scale it too fast, which sort of kills the, um, like what made the brand so special, yep. uh, or they buy too late and they overpay. And so I don't think there's a, like a super win-win there, but I, I mean, I guess it's a win for the brand because they, <laughs> they walked away with a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I, I think that in terms of the aspirations, maybe it's, maybe it still is to get acquired later or have, you know, investments or whatever, but still that they're really focused on that segment that they're, that they're addressing. The other kind of an offshoot of your question, when you say like these brands don't have as much money to like do these big TV ads, the other, the other piece of that is they are extremely savvy and even savvier than these big brands to go to grow their brand. So they're actually mm-hmm. able to do more with less because they're forced to. And so they have amazing product content or they've figured out how to get to number one slot for their most frequently searched term because they understand the algorithms, they figure it out faster and they're Mm -hmm. more nimble and they have less of a portfolio to worry about. They just focus on a few products. So they have a lot of benefits in that regard because they don't have a, you know, that cushion and fluffy ad budgets and, and things like that to rely on. So they have to rely on having an amazing product, this iterative process of being able to mine keywords and understand, oh, this is the flavor that people are asking for. I need to go create this product. You mm-hmm. know, product development takes a lot faster for them as well. And we've seen that with with the wise, like they're able to kind of create more and more portfolio pretty quickly. Melissa, mm-hmm. would you think, do you think it's fair to say that some of these uh, more disruptive brands are maybe more likely to channel their ad dollars towards the retailer ad platforms? Because they really need like an ROI, like for them to spend in, in some of the more sort of upper funnel activities might, might be harder. Yeah. I mean, we see that, especially with the sellers, the seller marketplace, they are so ROI driven. It's all about if I pay a dollar, I better get a huge return for that dollar in ad advertising. Whereas these bigger brands are more focused on marketing their portfolio and so they're much more focused on ROI of their advertising, whether it's, you know, anything from Google AdWords, Facebook advertising, whatever it is, they, ha- they want real-time data, real-time understanding of what's happening to their brand, and it has to be profitable. And it's, it's quite a bifurcation in how they look at, you know, advertising and marketing their products versus kind of these bigger brands, which is more of a marketing play. Yeah, I think that agility to adjust and move quick is so key. I was just talking with a guest yesterday um, from a company, Avocados from Mexico. Have y'all ever heard about them? Their content strategy, like what they're doing. I mean, they've been like winning like the number two slot in the Super Bowl ads. And her whole thing was like, you just have to be able to move quick. You need to be able to work with agencies who can like try it on their own, run with creativity and just act quickly. And even when you don't have a budget, you can get scrappy and use like organic growth hacky tactics to at least get up there in the beginning until you do have access to that budget. That was like her number one thing though, like move fast, try things out, fail quickly, and then like iterate. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I just Googled them as we're talking and uh, yeah, I can't wait to watch some of these videos. They look hilarious. Oh, their Super Bowl ad was so funny. I mean, all their stuff is funny. And it was funny at first. I was like, wait, why did Hillary schedule an avocado company for the show? Like I'm very (laughs) super confused by this. And I instantly got hungry and went out and like started eating avocados. But when she came on, I was like, oh, wow. They're like a whole different level. Like you think about produce in like a whole different way. I mean, they're doing um, AR stuff with their avocados. They're doing, let's say NFTs. Like they were, have been ahead, like years ahead trying stuff. I mean, they were trying NFTs in 2020 before it even became popular. And they were trying to put ad campaigns on the blockchain. And they, um, she was telling me a story about how 
they were had an avocado Macy's Day, what is that, float? And that the only way the float would get there from Mexico to New York is if users would tweet about it. And so that when you would tweet, enough tweets would happen and it would move the float to the next city. But that's the only way it would ever reach New York is if it had enough engagement. Oh, and that's like, so fun. I know. Yeah. I'm like, it's so genius. But her whole thing was like, that's why you just try try things and like have that permission to experiment and the brands that, you know, can move quickly and not have to worry about competing top of funnel. Like you get in on that engagement level and the scrappier tactics and you can win, which I think is awesome. And I think that's harder for some of the larger companies to do. Cause I mean, even just that example you gave about like tweeting to get the avocado from city to city, which I think is hilarious and yeah. super fun. You know, if that flopped, no one's going to say, Oh, that dumb avocado company. Like it's just sort of a memorable thing, but if it flopped in like I don't know, L'Oreal was doing that or something. Yeah. I think it makes bigger, bigger news in like not a good way. Yeah, yeah. Which always makes me think about the integration process of, you know, all these big brands are, of course, acquiring these hot D2C companies. And it feels like there's so many out there right now. I mean, so many people come on our show and I always think like, you're going to get acquired, you're going to get acquired. I mean, it just seems like that's like the world we're in. But then figuring out how to integrate them into a culture, but not in a way that ruins it. I mean, have you guys seen good examples of that, of like companies who acquire yeah. and then like keep them, you know, in their own little startup hub of like, keep doing what you're doing. We don't want to ruin you. I mean, we've seen it go both ways, but if we, so we have one, one client and I, um, I unfortunately can't share their name, but they, uh, they were acquired by a really large CPG. They were allowed to kind of operate separately because they're performing really well, but they're taxed so heavily by the rest of the organization because everyone wants to know how they're doing it. And so the like amount of reach outs and coffee chats and like all of mm -hmm. that stuff and presentations and stuff that they have to give. I mean, it's an enormous burden on this small brand to yeah. try to teach a huge CPG how to be like them, you know, wow. and I and I think that's that's hard. That's really hard for them. So I think that and I've, I've, you know, I've heard that happens a lot of the time or they get folded in a little too, you know, quickly. But, yeah. you know, something that I was thinking about is like. What happens to the customer? Because a lot of times we buy these products from these smaller upstart brands. I mean, I think about like in beauty, two of my favorite brands are Glossier and Beauty Counter. And I, I love them. And I love them partly because I feel like I'm supporting a company, well, at least in the case of um, Beauty Counter, a company that stands for something, which is kind of chemical, like low chemicals and things like that. I'm supporting their sales associate network and I'm supporting this smaller brand. But if they were to be purchased by like P&G tomorrow, mm -hmm. I don't know what my relationship with them feels like anymore. I'm not sure. I don't know. And so I wonder for some of these disruptive brands, like in what happens to that sort of authenticity and, and integrity when they're acquired. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. The other, the other thing that I've seen also is a lot of these bigger companies will siphon off people into like a team of incubators and they just let them go. So they mm -hmm. like take them, they take them out of their company organization structure. Like you need all this approval process to go do your stuff. Like they then go create like a direct to consumer brand or, you know, they're able to like operate in that nimble way. And they've been pretty successful getting learnings and trying to teach their organization some more nimble habits. So there's, mm -hmm. you know, one way, one route is buying the brand and then trying to keep them operating the same way and not too integrated into that like more bureaucratic process. And there's, you know, some successes and failures there. And then there's, you know, the big companies actually taking, you know, internal team to go do and not be subject to all the bureaucracy and 
So I've seen that as well. But mm-hmm. I think the key that we all agree on is just this ability to be nimble, um, speed. And if we've seen anything from e-commerce, that's what is the push. You know, so this nimbleness is something that's really important. Um, and these, you know, product cycle times need to get faster. And just the the data, like with this whole year of COVID, when we're working with brands, you know, the question is, is, is this year a throwout year? Because the behavior is just like totally off the chart. We know it's like totally different. So how are you making decisions knowing that last year's kind of not a good year to look at because, you know, things will return back to normal. How are you looking at it? And so getting faster at being able to look at data to understand what's happening, knowing the trends of what's happening. So like the best thing I can example is like MMM market mix models where it's like, oh, from six months or a year ago, and you're making decisions on your media based on that. Like, you can't do that. You can't look at six months ago, because nobody's doing TV advertising because they didn't have any inventory. So mm-hmm. you need to get much faster. And that's what's really propelling more of this in this ecosystem. So I think we will see brands being faster because they've been given that inertia because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I, th- I mean, I read some study, I can't remember who put it out. It was, I think it was McKinsey and they said something about um, 70, it was more than 70% of brand leadership said that they make decisions faster now mm-hmm. than they did previously. COVID taught all these companies how to reduce their cycle times and be faster and be more diversified and all of those things. And I think those are the good things that we get to walk away, um, hopefully walk away from the pandemic with, which are, you know, some changes to how decisions are made and things like that. And I would add to, you said, Melissa, you talked about how these companies need to reduce their cycle times for everything from budgeting to product development. And I totally agree with that. I think the other thing that these disruptive brands and particularly Wise and Dude Wipes would do well is they incorporate that user-generated content into their product development. So like it's getting the cycle time down, but it's also figuring out how do you take all the stuff that people are saying about your brand in social media and in reviews and all these other places and incorporate that into your product development and your advertising and your content and all of that. And I think the reason maybe that some of the more scrappy upstart brands are better able to do that is because there aren't a lot of scalable ways to do that yet. Mm -hmm. There are some tools that you can subscribe to and you can look across these channels and you can track your mentions and all that stuff. But like, it's really kind of a, a manual effort to be tracking a lot of that. And I think it's qualitative more than it is quantitative. And so I think some of those smaller brands that are still kind of owner operator run just are more in tune with some of the sentiment of the customers and, mm-hmm. and what needs to happen versus maybe a, a brand conglomerate. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine, who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about publicly, that is. Break the status quo. 
Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. It also seems like bigger brands, I mean, I've, I was talking with Stitch Fix a while back about how models can start running so quickly with like training based off of, you know, how the consumers are feeling now, what they want right now. And it seems like a lot of bigger brands do have access to, you know, crazy ML technologies and things like that to train these models to maybe make new product decisions, you know, change their website every second based off how people are inter- interacting with it. But I do also wonder, will we enter a year next year or the year after where it's like, whoa, what the people want now is not what they wanted two years ago. And now all of our models have been falsely trained based off a two-year craziness. I don't know. Exactly. So much has changed in the world, I think, in the last year that it's hard to look back at anything. It's hard to go back and look at anything as a data point that's a predictor of the future. I think it's just really tricky. How do you think about forecasting that? That's my thought is like, I mean, that was exactly what um, the VP of data science at Stitch Fix was talking about. It's like thinking about forecasting what kind of clothes people are going to want and thinking about your inventory. And it seems like now you have to be able to shift so quickly, but then also you could kind of be, you know, left flat footed where you're planning for something that didn't end up playing out. And people all of a sudden, you know, want to be looking nice again, going out into the world, wearing high heels. I don't know. It seems like there will be a point when brands are like, oh shoot, I got to pivot again and get back to maybe our roots of where we started three or four years ago. Yeah. And that's why it's, it's all about, yeah. I mean, it's, it's art and science because Mm -hmm. the science, the AI models, they need data Mm -hmm. to work and they aren't very good with anomalies like COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's not, um, or like prime day, you know, like, yeah. Or, or sun care. Remember being like the sun care buyer and every single year at Amazon, we never bought enough sun care because like the spike, it was like, couldn't predict that spike in the summer because the models weren't, you know, for the full year, but the modeling needs a lot of data for it to run. It doesn't do well with spikiness or, you know, kind of anomalies. And so that's where the art comes into play and the creativity, you know, as well. So you have to kind of think forward looking in terms of what are these trends? What are they going to be um, and Marriott together. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephanie, you'd asked this in the beginning of like, what are some of the big challenges kind of we're seeing across our clients? And this one's not very sexy, but it's like forecasting. Yes. <laughs> so hard right now. And they're all trying to figure out how do they forecast how much, well, there's a lot of things you have to forecast. It's like your year over your comps don't make any sense right now. I mean, it's like that you can't even look at that. Mm-hmm. And so how do you forecast just demand on one platform? Because you don't know how much that platform is going to get. And then you don't even know how much of your business is going to be e-commerce because that's all up in the air. There used to be like a pretty steady track of that, yeah. you know, getting like a point a year or something like mm-hmm. that. And now that's all over the place, depending on the category you're in, you know, you maybe gain 20 points or something in e-commerce. And then it's like, which retailer? Mm-hmm. It, it's, it feels a little bit like a gambling <laughs> exercise right now for these manufacturers trying to figure all that out. And then you have to like, to Melissa's point, you have to line up an ad budget around that for these different retailer ad platforms. And I think the forecasting is just so hard for them right now. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the ad platforms. And I know Melissa is kind of right up your alley. So maybe you can speak a bit about, you know, what, how are companies thinking about ad platforms and approaching that? I mean, it seems like there's so much to pay attention to, so much to track, so much data. So you're getting hit in the face, like all different ways with stuff now. Like, how are you, what are you seeing behind the scenes when it comes to ads and platforms and how to go about that world? Yeah. I mean, we've really seen an explosion of retail media. So it, it really started with Amazon. I think at this point, like five, six years ago, when their ad platform really started getting going and 
you know, Amazon makes a lot of profit from AWS and ads Mm -hmm. and retailers can't really replicate AWS, but they can replicate advertising, which is, you know, great margin for them. And so just last year, we saw, you know, a launch of Walmart self-service ad platform. Instacart came out of nowhere. So to Andrea's earlier point, you know, literally brands didn't have a budget allocated to Instacart. And then off a planning cycle during COVID, this explosive new platform launches. Luckily, a lot of brands had money because they weren't investing in TV advertising or other places. Um, so they're able to allocate some dollars to it. But, you know, the, the one of the big issues is nobody knows like who owns the Instacart budget or platform mm-hmm. who's running that. Um, and then since then, there's just, you know, Critio with Target has launched, which is a slew of other retailers. So if you're not creating your own self-service ad platform like Amazon, Walmart, and Instacart are, you can uh, leverage the network of Critio, who has, you know, Target and a bunch of other ones. Citrus Ads is coming online as well. Um, and so there's, you know, we went from kind of not having a lot of retail media opportunities to advertise to now lots of opportunities to advertise. Mm-hmm. Um with all kinds of different formats. And so it's a whole new brave world of trying to figure out where to advertise. But the what I think brands believe is they want to be where their customers are. And so, you know, that's where it's really having a test and learn mentality of being able to get some of these, you know, test and learn budgets to see what's working well and get some data points and proof points and you know, kind of go from there. And so that's where, you know, like tech stacks, like PacView or agencies, like, you know, who also have technology like IdeoClick can help brands because they can help them figure it all out. And our value prop is really around unifying retail media so that you can see everything in one place, which is really important for these brands. Um, So I think at the end of the day, you need savvy partners to help you. You need technology to help you. And then you need the strategist at your own company, you know, thinking through how to do these things. Yeah. I feel like right now, all the money, well, and I also read that Dollar General recently launched an ad platform. That one kind of surprised what? me. I didn't and, know yeah. they were still around, really. <laughs> I didn't even know they did e-commerce. Um, sorry, Donald, mm. Dollar General. How, I still love you. Make, You're still the best. How do you make money on that? Is that profitable? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, right? Like what, is, yeah. what are they That's, doing? It's pretty much like their value proposition is that everything costs less than $10 pretty much. So I don't know how they ship that online very economically, but in any case, $10, what? I thought it was supposed to be less than a (laughs) dollar. What happened? (laughs) They really lost sight of their vision. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think like in the short term, you know where the ad dollars are coming from. They're coming from the other ad options like theatrical releases or out all the out of home advertising and TV and billboards and all that stuff. But when people start leaving their houses again, how much of those ad budgets go back to some of those more, I don't know, non-retailer ad platform ad types and how much stays with retailer ad platforms. And I predict that a lot of it's going to stay with the retailer ad platforms. And I think the reason is the metrics and like ROI that you can get from that is like crack for marketers. I mean, I don't even know how you would go back to spending on advertising where you don't get ROI metrics. I mean, I remember when we when Amazon advertising first launched and that was one of the first kind of performance marketing kind of retailer ad platforms that you could work with and the reaction of the manufacturers just being like, "Oh my gosh, like <laughs> I can actually see like directly see a correlation between what I spent, who clicked on it, how many people saw it, and then how many people bought it." 
And, wow. and so I just, what don't... does the ROI look like? Cause I'm not deep in the ad world. So I don't know how to think about like what retailer ad platforms looks like versus traditional. So like, how do I envision what you're getting in that world that you wouldn't be getting otherwise? And like, what do, you know, what does that ROI look like? Or what are brands getting used to now where they're like, this is the only way I would do it going forward? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think traditionally what, you know, if you're doing um, normal advertising, you're kind of more focused on impression focus, right? You're Mm -hmm. just, you're really trying to get impressions. You're not tying back to sales of of a product. And so in e-commerce, there's a direct tie back to, I spent a dollar, I got $5 of sales. And there's like a brand halo Mm -hmm. associated with that. And so that, you know, tie back where I put an ad, you know, if you leverage Amazon DSP, which is their programmatic, you know, kind of display advertising, that's retargeting. So I, you can target to like people who are looking for men's shoes within this certain zip code, um, who shop Nike, but didn't buy it in the last 90 days. Like you can, you can get very, very specific targeting. You can show them an ad, drive them back to Amazon to your product. And then you actually know if they bought that product or not. And the actual sales attribution and return that you got from that versus, you know, just a impression by like a Super Bowl buy, right? Like you've yeah. no data to say when I do a Super Bowl ad, it core, I mean, you can try, but like there's no actual ROAS, you know, mm-hmm. return on ad spend that you get that correlates directly to an e-commerce sale. But, you know, I do think that media people are doing all of these things because some is upper funnel where you're more branding dollars and some as much, you know, lower funnel direct marketing that's conversion to a sale. And so that's where these bigger brands are like, if there's a new product launch, you got to get people to know about this product. So you might do like during the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl ads are like, you know, everybody's watching the Super Bowl. And this year they had some weird like caveman soap. I can't remember the name of it, but you know, on their Super Bowl ad. And so that was really to get attention and drive traffic to mm-hmm. awareness of their brand, um, but not tied to specific e-commerce metrics. So ha- have you seen brands changing the way they're thinking about ads in a way that's focused on like first-party data collection, like really trying to create that, you know, relationship from the start where maybe they weren't always thinking about this before? Like, how have you, sh- how have you seen brands shifting their mindset around creating an ad that maybe has the focus on that now? Well, I mean, with all of the things happening within the privacy world where third-party cookies are going away, you know, first-party day becomes more important. And so I think that this benefits platforms like Amazon who have a significant amount of first-party data and hurts platforms like Facebook mm-hmm. that um, rely on more cookies. But I think brands in general are really trying to build their own databases. So a lot of them have publicly talked about building direct-to-consumer businesses so they can, you know, own their their customer. And so I think that they view first-party data building their own CRM and their own databases pretty highly. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you, what have you seen, Andrea, in terms of brands that you work with? Yeah, I've seen um, kind of the same thing. I think a lot of them are, are building their own CRMs trying to figure out how to, um, you know, how to access more direct customer data. I think COVID, you know, we kind of talked about how it encouraged a lot more speed of decision-making. I think it also encouraged a need for diversification in all ways, like manufacturing and the e-commerce platforms that you sell on and all, you know, um, how you source the product and just have like, I think diversification is really important. And I think, you know, there are a lot of manufacturers who've been sort of in the you know, have been feeling a bit squeezed by Amazon and it's nice to have options to have a D2C site. 
the D to C thing, I think is kind of like a whole other topic, but I, I do think it's, it's a lot more expensive to drive traffic to those sites. You know, you're going to get a lot, it's not going to be a huge, hugely accretive to the business in the short term, but I do think it gives you access to your own customer data, which is, can be a really important point of experimentation in a sandbox for manufacturers to really see what kind of marketing is working for them. So have certainly seen that. And then I think, you know, just looking across the retailer ad platforms, I mean, we've seen a push onto all platforms for a lot of our major manufacturers and wanting to, you know, access if the customer's cross shopping, maybe it's the same customer, but also access different customers that are shopping across different ad platforms to Melissa's point earlier about wanting to be like where your customers are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So the other day, Andrew, I was creeping on your Instagram, I think it was, and you were oh. talking about, huh? <laughs> you're talking about omni-channel strategies and drop shipping as a catalyst for growth. And I thought that was interesting because I feel like when I think about drop shipping, it's had this like crazy heyday, drop ship, white label everything. No one has to know who you are. You don't really need a brand. And then, you know, it kind of, no one was really doing that anymore. It didn't seem like there was margins there to do that anymore, or people really wanted to connect with the brand, like especially now. Everyone wants to know who's behind that brand, the story. They want to feel some kind of connection with them. And when I saw you mentioned dropshipping, I was wondering, like, how are you guys viewing that? Is it maybe it's always been around and that's just my personal narrative I've written around it? Or how do you see brands maybe leveraging that right now? Well, I think um, I think of dropshipping a little bit differently. It's still the brand. They're just um, bypassing the retailer and they're shipping directly to the consumer. And, you know, you can do that as your as a seller in your own right on the marketplace platforms, or you can also just do that kind of behind the scenes. And there are a number of categories that are, you know, high percentage dropship and always have been. They've, it's never gone away. It's just not obvious to you as a customer. So shoes is a great example. Those are often coming directly from the manufacturer. That's an industry that's been pretty heavy dropship for a long time. And mainly because so much inventory you have to carry, like mm -hmm. there's one style and then there's like five size color combinations. And so it doesn't make sense to ship all that to a retailer and then have them reship it to a customer and try to keep the inventory okay. levels right. So shoes has always been a really big dropship business. If you kind of pay attention to the stuff you get from Nordstrom and, and others, you'll notice that it's often coming directly from the manufacturer. Um, sporting goods is another one. Some of the bigger bulky categories have off, have been traditionally drop ship because you don't want to ship like a treadmill to a retailer distribution warehouse or whatever. Yeah. But it is, it does expose the retailer to a degree of risk because you don't get to really, you're not packaging the product. So mm -hmm. you lose a little bit of control over, you know, the quality, the consistency of the customer experience. And I, I think what I posted was that Nordstrom was going to try to open up more assortment through drop ship. And I think it's a little bit of a risky, a little bit, it's a little risky. I mean, I don't think it's highly risky, but I do think it, it presents some risk in losing control over the customer experience, depending on if the retailer is still deciding the assortment, you could mm -hmm. lose a little bit of um, your credibility as a retailer. I mean, I think part of why customers are starting to shop a lot of places besides Amazon is for the curation yeah. is because it's a little bit of a, an easier shopping experience. Like I would much rather shop for shoes on Nordstrom where I know that someone actually made a, a decision to carry, yeah. <laughs> you know, each of those products versus on Amazon where it's kind of the wild west and there's just overwhelming. So I think, you know, a lot of these retailers that are competing with Amazon and doing well with it right now, I think are doing it well because of the curation. And if you open up those retailers to just sort of like unlimited drop shipping with the brands, I think you you just lose a lot of that value proposition. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it seems like though Amazon could just come in and just have like a curated collection and maybe they're already doing this, but of just 
you know, this is the Ray Dunn collection. This is the Chip and Joanna. And like you go there kind of knowing what you're going to get. Because I thought the same thing the other day. I was trying to find, I don't know, some piece of yard furniture. And it was so overwhelming. I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many egg chairs. Like I know the egg chair I want, but there's so many. 90% of them are not egg chairs. Like, do you know what an egg chair is? And then I just went to like Walmart and they had the exact one I wanted, which I found through an influencer. But, or I would just go to West Elm and just be like, they have the exact, you know, selection that I want. I'm not going to mess around. But it seems like they could come in really quick and change that if they want it's it to. Just, they can't. It's so no. hard. I mean, they have yeah. a one size fits all platform and it's heavily search based. And I remember, how do you say her last name? Melissa Kathy, who used to lead soft lines at Amazon, oh. Kathy Bodain. Yeah. Well, in any case, they came in and I think Amazon fashion had kind of its best, you know, couple of year run. They really created some curated lists and brand and some storefronts and they started the Amazon delivers for fashion. And I thought it actually was really good stuff. And, but she said, it's a thin veneer that we've put over the site. I remember her saying that it's a thin <laughs> veneer. And once you like scratch, scratch it, you see just like mm-hmm. all the assortment and everything that's there. And it's kind of overwhelming. I keep a little like goofy quote list that people on my team say, and this guy on my team, Jamal, the other day, I can't remember the context, but he said, if you're going to go shopping on Amazon for a teddy bear sweatshirt, I'll see you in a week. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember why someone was shopping for a teddy bear sweatshirt or what the context was, (laughs) but it cracked me up because it's so true. I mean, you could spend a week like just combing through, even for something super specific like that, a teddy bear sweatshirt, like you could spend a week. There's this SNL sketch about Netflix that I highly recommend that you watch because it's really, it's like a fake ad for Netflix, but it says by the time it's the endless scroll, by the time you get to the end of the scroll, we've added and created new content. And so it's the infinite loop. They call it an infinite loop. And Amazon (laughs) is kind of like that. Like by the time you get to page 10, they've probably added more assortment. So people are working in the background. She needs 10 more of these. Keep going. Oh my gosh. All right. So I know you guys have a hard stop in a couple of minutes on Clubhouse and maybe I'll even try and join you over there. But I do want to get one last question. Usually I do a quick lightning round. Lightning rounds brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. But for this one, you each only get one question because we're on a time crunch. So Melissa, we'll start with you and it'll be the same question. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Oh man, that's a hard one. I'm glad I get to go second. Yeah, Yeah, Andrea already had to do it once on her last episode and it can't be the same answer, Andrea. What's going to be the biggest impact to e-commerce in the the next next year? year? I mean, we already had COVID. So that's what had the biggest impact on e-commerce. I guess, I mean, maybe it's a ripple effect of, I'm going to have to say COVID because that has had the biggest impact on e-commerce because it's accelerated it so much with new people you know, especially different age brackets, older, you know, the older age bracket is shopping online. And so we know the baseline is never going to return back to where it was and it has changed behaviors and it will be accelerated. Um, The other interesting thing, you know, I just noticed this when I walk into a beauty store, like an Ulta is that, you know, beauty used to be a way better experience in store than it was online. Now it's the opposite. It's way better online. Because I order from I, Tarte all the time, just directly yeah. from Tarte. Cause I'm like way better than going in store. Because you can have virtual reality, but what's this color going to look like? When I walk into an Ulta, everything's taped down. You can't mm-hmm. try on anything. You can't see the format of anything. And I don't know how much of that's going to return. I don't think people are going to be very comfortable trying, like picking things up that are people have touched for a very yeah. long time. I don't want to. Um, I never wanted to. I never yeah. wanted to try lip gloss. I'm like, ew, how many stanky lips has this touched? <laughs> 
So, you know, I think the interesting, and then, you know, Amazon announced opening a hair salon where a lot of it's going to be tech focused around what's this color going to look like in my, you know, virtual reality of hair color. Um, so I think that, you know, COVID has accelerated this complete change in, you know, behavior, lifestyle. And the other thing is, I don't know if I'm ever going to wear, you know, jeans again. I might just wear <laughs> my Viore joggers to work if I ever go back to an office. So. There's Feel a great that. YouTube video on how to how to dress up joggers that I'll send you. <laughs> All right, Andrea, you're on the hot seat. Okay, I'm going to go with social shopping and live streaming. And I don't know if it'll be in the next year, but I think it is going to be the biggest disruption to e-commerce because it is going to start taking the transaction or at least the beginning of the transaction off of the e-commerce site and onto social media. And I know that I don't have a lot of agreement on this in the industry. Like a lot of people are like, oh, it's going to take longer or like people aren't going to shop on social media, but I'm feeling super bullish on this. And I think it's primarily due to my own behavior, which is Mm -hmm. that I am almost exclusively buying things that influencers have recommended to me. And it's a super clunky experience. Like you have to click, go down to the bottom of the YouTube show notes and like find the top she had on and. And it's annoying and I'm still doing it because it's preferable to the end the scroll Mm -hmm. (laughs) of Amazon. So I really think that that is going to be a huge disruptor to e-commerce and have a big impact on it. Um, Although I was, I was like wrong about this once before I helped start a company. Like, I guess it was like 15 years ago now that was about social shopping. It would like loud, allow, it was kind of a, an old version of a screen share before we had screen shares, but it allowed you to shop retailer websites, like with your friends. And, um, it it took a long time to get it off the ground and we eventually sold it to Nordstrom for, um, for their style boards, which was like a kind of a very different application than what we originally went in, um, went to the idea with, but I still feel super bullish on this. People prefer to shop together or they prefer Mm -hmm. to shop with, um, you know, with feel like they're shopping with someone kind of in the, in the, in the case of like curation from influencers or, or whatever. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling bullish on social shopping and and live streaming. I will a thousand percent back you up on that because yeah, almost all my shopping behavior comes from influencers and I will go through all the hoops and hurdles to try and find something, even through that dang like to know it app, which is horrible to work through. (laughs) And you're like, I'm just trying to find my shirt. And then you're like bouncing around into like 10 different apps and it throws you over back to like Nordstrom and then you're back again. It's not fun. So I hope that process gets easier. I am a huge fan of taking a screenshot and using Google Lens. I don't know if you ever do that. No, but I don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's if you can't find it, that's like a great, great Google Lens is, I don't know that that's their intended application, but it's really <laughs> it is useful today. That. <laughs> that's, that's great. All right. Well, I really think we need to have a quarterly roundtable. This is super fun having you both join us. And uh, yeah, where can we find out more about you, Andrea, Melissa? Where can we find about? Idea Click and Pack View. Yeah, you can. Well, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I post and write a lot about e-commerce there or on my website, andreaklayconsulting.com. And you can learn more about Idea Click at ideoclick.com. You see, Melissa? Yeah. Ditto. Uh, LinkedIn, you can find me, Melissa Burdick, there. Um, and then packview.com, P-A-C-V-U-E.com. Yeah, would love to hear from folks. Or you can find Andrea and I in Clubhouse later this afternoon. Yes, four (laughs) o'clock. Although this will air after that. Yeah, you guys are giving a preview of this. So yeah. (laughs) All right, thanks so much, y'all. Okay, thanks for having us, Stephanie. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. 
You get it delivered straight to your inbox every week. Sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.